And as you turn there, I want you to know that we have thoroughly enjoyed our time in Washington already uh, in our short time that we've been here. Obviously, first and foremost, just getting to know so many of you, some better than others. That's been wonderful for us as a family to be able to do that, uh, brethren. Um, we've also just uh, been floored by the amazing, amazing scenic sights. Few places compared to Washington. Amen? As far as what you're able to see here, just like five minutes driving distance, ten minutes driving distance, there's so many wonderful places to enjoy. I mean, where we live in Maple Valley, we can actually walk about, I don't know, five minutes, and we have one of the best views of Mount Rainier when she's, she's showing, right? And uh, wow, I mean, people are driving up to this particular hill to park their cars and take pictures of Mount Rainier. We can walk there in like three or four minutes. So, so many sites like that. Obviously, that one is a highlight. And uh, another one that has been another highlight for us has just been the, the accessibility to lush trees. I mean, there's green everywhere. You know what I'm saying? And where we live, we can actually walk about two minutes to this cul-de-sac, and there's a, a trailhead right there where we can actually go on a walk as a family just two minutes away, walking distance from our house. And obviously, you're walking through this wonderful uh, trail, and there's trees everywhere, and there's a lot of oxygen, right? Just breathing in and breathing out, right? Or something that you couldn't really do in L.A., you know what I'm saying? Because of the way things were over there. So it's been really enjoyable, and uh, our little Chloe will take a little basket with her because everywhere on this trailhead, there are blackberries everywhere and boysenberries, right? And so she's collecting these things. We've had brethren here who have given us uh, boysenberry pies. And so it's been so awesome to see that. That wasn't easily accessible in L.A., okay? Unless you went to Ralph's over there, right? Which is the equivalent of the Fred Meyer, right? Um, over there. So these lush trees all around bearing much fruit, berries galore. It's been so enjoyable. And every time that I walk through that trail, and I am, uh, we have access to this luscious fruit. I think about the Christian life. And I actually think about this particular passage in Mark chapter 4 that we're going to be in this morning, known as the parable of the four soils. The parable of the four soils. Because, you know, just as um, um, those uh, berries highlight just a, a, a wonderful, wonderful access to uh, lush fruitfulness, right, in those particular uh, contexts, I think the Christian life should be the same way for us, brethren, individually and collectively, even as a church. Did you know that God wants you to bear much fruit? God wants you to be a fruitful Christian. In John chapter 15 and verse 8, Jesus said, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be My disciples. Jesus wasn't saying there in John 15 8 that uh, fruit is what saves you, but that those who are genuine followers of, of Christ are those who necessarily, naturally will bear fruit in the Christian life. The Spirit will produce fruit in your life. In Titus chapter 2 and verse 14, it says that Christ has redeemed us from every lawless deed to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. And then in Titus chapter 3 and verse 14, Paul instructs Titus, our people, Titus, must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs that they will not be unfruitful. There he equates fruitfulness, obviously, with service, with the need to meet needs, the needs of others. 
And so my question this morning for us as we begin this particular message is this. Are you a fruit-bearing person? Are you a fruit-bearing Christian? This is really the question that we ask ourselves as we look at Mark chapter 4 and why this passage in particular is so important for us to contemplate and to consider. In this text, Jesus challenges His audience to be careful how they listen, and He does it by way of a, of a parable. Verse 2, if you notice, of Mark 4, says that He was teaching them many things in parables and was saying to them in His teaching, listen, behold, the sower went out to sow. He was teaching in parables. A parable is a compound word that could be translated that, that, uh, to throw or place alongside of or beside. To throw or place alongside of or beside. And a parable could be an illustration. It could be a wise saying. It could be a word picture. Or it could be a pithy story thrown alongside to teach or elucidate a spiritual truth or principle. The Lord Jesus taught many parables, including this one in particular from the realm of agriculture. His audience would have understood the imagery that He uses here. Now, I want you to think about this in setting the, the context and the setting for what Jesus says here. Because the weightiness of the parable here is, is underscored by the type of day that this has been in the life of our Lord and the type of audience that He is addressing this is the same day that a massive crowd had gathered at, Jesus, at, at His headquarters in Capernaum. This is the same day that those closest to Jesus and His family had treated Him as a uh, misguided fanatic who had gone mad. This is the same day that the religious elite had been spreading rumors about Jesus that He was both indwelt by and, in, and empowered by Satan or a demon. This is the same day when he spoke about the priority of God's spiritual family. And who knows what kind of backlash Jesus received because of that statement. That it is those who do the will of my Father who are my family, my spiritual family. And so it was a busy day. Full of vicious attacks and hostility and rejection. No doubt full of emotions for the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that wasn't enough, the, all the aspects of that particular tough day in the life of our Lord. Our Lord heads out to the nearby Sea of Galilee where there are massive crowds again gathered to hear Him. Look at verse 1. He began to teach again by the sea and such a very large crowd, notice the language, gathered to Him that He got into a boat in the sea and sat down and the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. The crowds were so great that Jesus was to jump on a boat be taken to the deeper waters, and that boat that Jesus is on becomes a, a sort of floating pulpit as He addresses the masses from the deep waters. Many people are there to listen to Jesus. And just think about the audience. Think about the masses of those who are listening. Brethren, most of those people, with few exceptions, have heard Jesus teach, have watched or heard of Jesus' miracles, have witnessed Him healing the sick, casting out demons, displaying great power and majesty. They love what He can do for them. He's sort of a, a quite the attraction. They love the benefits of being around Jesus and His disciples. But they haven't committed themselves to following Him, most of them because they believe He's the Messiah. They haven't embraced Him as Lord of their lives. 
You know, in every generation, we have people like this who fill churches and sit in pews in churches across America and across, our, and across the world, right? Who sit in churches and they love the gifts and the benefits of Christianity, love to be around God's people, but they're not genuine and sincere followers of Jesus. They don't love Christ. They don't serve Christ. They don't evangelize and tell people about Jesus because they are compelled and captivated by the person and the work of Jesus. And so we can identify with the crowds here and what Jesus is experiencing. Worst of all, as you think about the setting, the religious leaders who should have been the ones who knew Scripture and tested the claims of Jesus according to Scripture and believed in Jesus that He was the promised Messiah, the religious leaders are outright rejecting Him, undermining Him with the people and the crowds, spreading vicious rumors about Him, including attributing to Jesus that He taps into the demonic realm when He does miracles, attributing the work of the Spirit working through Jesus to, to Beelzebul. In chapter 3, verse 22, this is all part of the setting and why this is such a key text for us to work through this morning and contemplate and apply ourselves to. You see why on this same day Jesus teaches on the crucial importance of a right response to the Word of God, on the need for people to respond to what He's saying, to His claims, and be fruitful kinds of people. It's huge. There's a sense of urgency. There's a sense of, 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 of pathos. In Jesus' words here, look at chapter 4 and verse 3. He says, listen, literally listen. Behold, the sower went out to sow. That's a, a present tense command. He's commanding them to continually listen, to give heed to His words. Look at chapter 4 and verse 9. He was saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Literally, listen. Listen. Present tense command. Look at chapter 4 and verse 23. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear or listen. Present imperative, present command. Continually give heed to my words. Jesus is commanding his audience to give heed, ready, so as to obey his word. That's the sense of this word listen and this uh, command to listen. Listen or hear so as to do something with what I'm teaching you. Listen so as to take action in your life. That's what Jesus is getting at when He says, listen. It's not just listen with one ear and not the other. It's appropriate these things to your life. Be devoted to these things. Take action. So there's a great sense of, of urgency here. Back in chapter 3 and verse 35, Jesus defined His true family even as those who do the will of God His Father. It's not those who say that they're followers of Jesus, right? Even his biological family, he says, it's those who follow through with doing what I say. Doing what my Father instructs. So there's a great sense of urgency, brethren, that the Master Teacher is teaching and preaching with here, right? And he takes this imagery of agriculture, which every person during that time would have understood, to teach on the foundational lesson that really unlocks all the other parables in the Gospels. And it's this, that the person who wants to be part of the kingdom must humbly respond in obedience, humility, and fruitfulness to the Word of Christ. Along these lines, then, the key to the parable is understanding that the soils here, the four soils in Mark chapter 4, 
represent the, the heart attitude of a person to the Word of God. That's what those four soils are. Four different kinds of hearts. The soils represent the hearts of, of people, of those who hear the Gospel, of those who hear the Word of God. And mark it, brethren, the crucial question that each of us is to ask ourselves this morning, and don't walk out of this service without asking you this que- answering this question, which of the four soils best describes me? Which of the four soils represents your heart in the present time, not in the past? When you made some profession of faith, walked the Nile, prayed a prayer, whatever that may be in your journey. Which soil represents you and describes you in the present? Ask yourself this morning on the one hand, what's your response, your heart's response to the gospel? Have you committed your life to Christ? Have you truly turned from your sins, repented from your sins, and transferred trust from self and works and all of that that doesn't save anybody, and you have placed your, your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you a follower of Jesus today? Through all the struggles, through all the difficulties, through all the battles with sin, and for the Christian, the, it's a, a daily battle and fight against sin, isn't it? Have you trusted Christ Are you a follower of Jesus? Because then you're positioned to bear fruit. Otherwise, you're a fruitless person. Because in order for you to bear fruit, you must have the Spirit of God living in you. You must be converted. You must be born again. You must have trusted in Christ in order for you to be fruitful as a believer. On the other hand, if you are a Christian... If you are a Christian, can I ask you, what is the present state of your heart to the Word of God? Are you humbly listening to God's Word, following through with obedience, or are you a hearer only and not a doer of the Word? Do you deliberately think about ways to apply the Word to your life and thus bear fruit for God, for His glory and for the good of others around you? This parable is a challenge to each of us no matter where we are, to self-examine, brethren, where we are currently. And so let's begin here. Here are four kinds of hearts. And the question that I want you to ask yourself throughout this message is, which one are you today in the present? First, as you take notes, are you the hard-hearted? Write that down. Are you the hard-hearted? Look in verse 3. Listen, he says. Listen to this. Literally listen so as to appropriate is the idea. Behold, the sower went out to sow. According to the custom of the day, here's this unidentified farmer carrying a bag around his waist full of seed, scattering seed everywhere, whether wheat or barley or whatever it may have been. Again, this is imagery that they would have understood very well. And of course, Jesus isn't referring to just farming in and of itself or to just any human farmer. By way of implication, he's preaching to them, right, to this audience, to these masses that are after him. So this is first and foremost, the sower here is Jesus himself. It's Christ himself. And by extension, this could refer to anyone who, re- who shares the true gospel. To anyone who preaches and spreads the unadulterated, uncorrupted Word of God. 
This is the sower, and the seed is the Word of God. We know that because in verse 14, if you notice, it says that the sower sows the what? The Word. The Word. And 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23 refers to the, to the Word of God as the imperishable seed. That we've been born again by means of the imperishable seed, the Word of God. And so this sower scatters and distributes seed all over the place, lavishly, indiscriminately. He's not picking and choosing where to scatter. He simply scatters far and wide everywhere. And as he does so, we're introduced to this first soil, the hard-hearted. Look at verse 4. As he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. Oftentimes, in an effort to cover the whole length of the, of the field, some seed would inevitably fall upon this, this open road, off the cultivated path, if you will, off the cultivated soil. And as you may imagine, as that seed would lay openly on the hardened path, the hungry birds would quickly come and, and quickly snatch the seed and devour it. This was very common. They would have understood the imagery and this happening amongst them in this agricultural context. But of course, Jesus isn't just talking about birds and bird food, is He? He's not talking literally. He's talking figuratively. And so He explains, if you look down in verse 13, the meaning of this. Verse 13, And He said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the Word with a capital W, the Word of God. Verse 15, These are the ones, speaking of the, the hearers, who are beside the road where the Word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the Word which has been sown in them. Right Here's the spiritual significance to what Jesus is getting at. Now, as you read that, at first glance, this sounds like the, like the Word is, is suddenly and helplessly taken from these poor people's hearts, whoever they are. That they had no choice in the matter. At first glance, if you read this, this, this seems like the proverbial, the devil made me do it. You know what I mean? I was helpless. If God is sovereign, then, right? It doesn't matter how I respond. That's not what this is talking about here. Notice in verse 15 what it says. These, verse 15, are the ones who, who are, present tense verb, who are beside the road. Present tense verb. In other words, these are people who are already dwelling in a place where they've hardened their heart toward the truth. Very key. In other words, they, are, they have situated themselves beside the road and that pictures their unresponsive hearts to the Word of Christ. Through the Gospel. To Jesus. These people have stony hearts. Hardened hearts towards the truth. Hearts that are not fertile. Hearts that are not tender to the Gospel or to God's Word. This may show itself in an explicit hostility to the Gospel. When you have a hardened heart, you might be explicitly hostile to the Gospel, be a scoffer against the truth and against the claims of Jesus. Or you might just be indifferent to the Gospel. You know, I'm not hostile against the truth of Jesus, but it's not for me. You might be the kind of a person who has a hardened heart and it might manifest itself in, in no serious contemplation or consideration about what you're hearing on a week-to-week basis when it comes to the Gospel. In short, you're hardened and unrepentant. You are unbelieving. Mark it. This is 
satanic. It's unbelief. And what's the implication, brethren? We read these frightening words. Don't harden your heart to the Gospel. Don't harden your heart to God's Word. Your very soul is at stake. Your eternal well-being hangs in the balance. And if this is you today, the Bible doesn't give you an out. If you're the hard-hearted, you can't blame your hard heart on Satan. Well, Satan doesn't allow me to believe. Or, you know, I, I need more proof. I need more reason. I need more proof to believe in this Jesus and His claims. Or I've seen too many bad examples being around so-called Christians who profess to follow Jesus and they live a double life. You're not going to stand before God someday and say, God, I didn't believe in Christ because fill in the blank. You won't be able to do that. God will ask you, what did you do with my son? There is no sin that ultimately can keep you from heaven except the sin of unbelief. Not trusting in Jesus. Not giving your life to Christ. Rejecting the free offer of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ alone. You need to know if you're a hard, hardened heart person this morning. You need to know that one day you will be accountable to God for what you have heard concerning the truth. And may I exhort you, implore you, that you need to turn from that hardened heart and have a soft heart towards the truth. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Harden your heart no longer. Repent of your sins. Acknowledge your sin before a holy and just Creator. Turn to the only hope of salvation. Don't turn your back on God's love for sinners in Christ Jesus. Harden your heart no longer. Become a follower of Christ today. Commit your life to Christ. Make that commitment of confident trust in Jesus. Well, there's the hard-hearted. But there's also, secondly, the shallow-hearted. Write that down, the shallow-hearted. Look at verse 5. This is the shallow-hearted soil or shallow-hearted heart. Verse 5, other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. Verse 6, And after the sun had risen, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. Notice the language. It didn't have much soil, right? Verse 5, No depth of soil. At the end of verse 5, No root. In verse 6, they would have understood this imagery. Often seed would, would fall upon a very thin layer of soil and the, as the farmer would freely scatter seed all over the place and beneath that thin layer would be solid limestone or some other hard uh, rock and there would be no depth of soil, no root. So what would this lead to? One, the plant would spring up too quickly due to the heat underneath and then the plant was unable to develop those deep roots and so it would grow quickly. The sun would beat down on it so that it would get scorched and quickly dry up. That was the process. And so they would have understood this. But the Lord explains the shallow-hearted type of person. Look at verse 16. Verse 16, in a similar way, 
These are the ones, people, on whom seed was sown on the rocky places who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. Verse 17, and they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, underline that, because of the word, immediately they fall away. The sense there at the end is they stumble over this. This is a scary picture, brethren. Our Lord is describing a person who is initially excited, initially enthusiastic about the Gospel, about the Word of God, about the things of the Lord. They even have their emotions for a time, for a season of time, moved by truth. But these emotions, that excitement, that superficial joy is just that, superficial, because this is not grounded in biblical substance truth this is a person whose excitement is not rooted in a right understanding of the gospel this is why it's so critical as we share christ with people you say well well the lord can save anyone based upon some 10 second uh, gospel message amen preach it god can save anyone with any type of message that you give right consistent with scripture but as far as it depends on us, we must be clear about the gospel and articulate a biblical gospel and be as thorough as we can be with the gospel so that people understand the biblical gospel and their substance behind their response. But this is the kind of person who's not rooted in a right understanding of the gospel nor in a right understanding, listen, of the cost involved with following Christ. How often do you, when you share Jesus with people, tell them, hey, salvation is free, but it's going to cost you everything. How often have you used terminology like that? It's free, but it's going to cost you everything in response to what God has done for you in Christ Jesus out of a heart of love and gratitude. We know this issue with cost because look at verse 17. It says that when affliction or persecution because of the word comes, what happens? They fall away. They are scandalized is the idea here. They stumble over because of persecution and affliction. When those come, they stumble over the opposition and no longer want to, want to follow. And again, note, it's because of the word that they suffer. This is not referring to suffering because of our sin, or because we do evil, or because we've made bad choices and we suffer the consequences of our choices. That's not what this is talking about. He's talking about suffering for the sake of Christ. Suffering because you you are committed to doing what Jesus has said, no matter what the cost and what the consequences. That's what he's getting at here. There are many people filling churches, again, who've never counted the cost of following Christ who maybe have heard things like the prosperity gospel. Wealth, health, prosperity. Right? This is your best life now. Take Jesus, and He's going to give you all of these things. Well, I'm going to take Jesus on those terms. He gives me riches, money, possessions, whatever, friendships, relationships. I'll take Jesus if you give me all those benefits. They love the gifts, not the giver. You know what I'm saying? There are many people like that in pews, brethren. We don't count the cost of following Christ. It's not about the glory of Jesus. It's about their self-centered, self-worshipful life. It's not about Jesus and exalting Christ. I'm sure you would resonate with this. You know, my life became harder when I came to Christ. Amen? How many of you can identify with that? 
I mean, life is joyful. There is a, a peace that surpasses comprehension, knowing that my soul is secure in Jesus, no matter what I do, because it's grounded and rooted in the person and the work of Christ alone. But I've got to tell you, it's hard. Every day. Against my sin. Against my thoughts. Actions. Words. Sanctification is a battle and a struggle every single day. Can I get another amen? That's all of us. Trials, opposition, affliction. Flipsis is the Greek terminology, right? We feel hemmed in on both sides with the pressures of walking with Christ and wanting to honor Jesus. Following Jesus is joyful, peaceful, but it's hard. It's a struggle. And this is hard for people to understand. Having heard counterfeit messages like the prosperity gospel and things like that. Those things have not helped at all, right? They fail to tell people that narrow is the way that leads to life. Few find it. Few. Why? Because they're not willing to suffer for the sake of the truth. Suffer for the sake of Christ. You know, Scripture speaks abundantly about suffering and the suffering involved with following after Jesus. Jesus says in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, Whoever wishes to, to follow me, he must deny himself or herself, take up his cross, and follow me continually. Think about that. You want to follow after Jesus? You must deny yourself? What does that mean? That's an imperative, by the way. You must. It is necessary. It is required, imperative, that you say no to yourself. That you make that commitment to say no to yourself. Self-abandonment. For those who want to follow Christ. Leaving your old style behind. Lifestyle. Abandoning your old ways. The old you must die. Daily. Deny yourself if you want to follow Christ. Listen, if that's not, that doesn't describe your Christian walk right now, maybe you're not saved. Maybe you're not saved. If you just give in to your sin, you don't obey the Word of God, Every day it's about you. You never ask the question, what does Jesus say in His Word and how should I follow through with this, with what Jesus says in His Word? If characteristically as the pattern of your life, you are not daily denying yourself, you are probably not saved. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ today. You want to follow after Christ? Mark chapter 8, verse 34, deny yourself. Take up your cross. And you know what the cross was symbolic of? In the Gospels, what was it? Shame. Suffering, pain in multiple ways. He says, take up your cross. Imperative command. You must take up your cross on a lifelong journey because he says, and follow me. Present tense imperative. Continually follow me. There's no such thing as, well, well, for a period of time, I was following after Jesus. In the last five or ten years, I haven't been following after Jesus, not attending any church, not attending any small groups, and I've been comfortable in that. But at one point in time, five, ten, fifteen, twenty, twenty-five years ago, I made a commitment to Jesus. Listen to me. You're not saved. If that is you being comfortable in there, if that is the pattern of your life, characteristically, because those who follow Jesus follow Him for the rest of their earthly lives, never turn back. Amen? Amen? Never. Are there seasons of life when you're struggling and where, where there's, there's hard things going on? Absolutely. I've been through those, brethren. But we believe in the doctrine of perseverance of the saints, don't we? That the Spirit of God will get you all the way to the end. 
So you want to follow after Christ? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. There's the call. Boy, that's not a very seeker-friendly message, is it? (laughs) Philippians 1, verse 29. Suffering is a part of the Christian life. Paul says to the Philippians, For to you, Christians, it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. And that word in Philippians 1.29 translated has been granted, or that phrase comes from, that's the, the verb form from which we get our word grace. Unmerited favor or kindness. This grace has been given to you not only to believe in Him, he says, but also to suffer for His sake. That's tough stuff, isn't it? Suffering is a grace. So much for our comfortable Christianity. So much for our idleness and the idols of ease and security and self-preservation. Brethren, we've been called to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and daily until the end of this Christian race here in this world, follow Jesus all the way to the end, embracing suffering for the sake of the Gospel. And we need grace to be able to do that. And we need one another to be able to do that in this Christian race. But suffering is a part of it. Acts chapter 5, verse 41, it says that the, when the apostles left, they left rejoicing that they had been counted worthy of suffering shame for the name of Christ. Acts 5, 41. Man, that's some spirit-empowered response right there. In Acts chapter 14, verse 22, Paul and Barnabas, after having been stoned, Strengthen the brethren with these words. Through many tribulations, we must or it is necessary to enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations, flipsis, afflictions, oppressions for the sake of the gospel. That's not a very seeker-friendly message, is it? But that's the call of the gospel. That's the call of the gospel. And you don't hear that in so many different contexts today. All of this is speaking of costly discipleship, brethren. Costly discipleship. None of this cheap grace stuff. Well, I've been saved by grace, so now I can live my life however I want, for myself, my own agenda, and all of that. I am boss of my life. Listen, cheap grace. That's not saving gospel grace. Because the grace that saves is the grace that sanctifies and the grace that sustains you all the way to the end. Read Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Grace saves, grace sanctifies, grace sustains you all the way into the end. You deny ungodliness and you pursue righteousness. That is God's kind of grace right there. All the way to the end. This is costly discipleship in the sense that Jesus requires total and exclusive allegiance and suffering is part and parcel of this brethren. The trials and tribulations are essential. Essential. And part and parcel of why we need the the powerful Holy Spirit sustaining us. Going back to some messages a few Sundays ago about needing to be spirit-dependent and grace-filled. Boy, we need that. I need that. And so the lesson to glean from this second soil is that you may have made a profession of faith at some point in the past, you may have even experienced a sense of, that, of initial and temporary excitement, emotionalism at some point. But in the present, here's the question, are you trusting Christ and is Jesus truly boss of your life? In the present. Who cares about what you did in the past? That's only relevant in so long as 
Man, I can look back and say, man, that was the turning point. Oh, everything changed. Everything changed. And life has been hard since. There have been seasons of struggle and difficulties. But boy, I love Jesus. I want to be holy. I want to walk in obedience to Him. It comes down to affections, doesn't it? Jonathan Edwards wrote a book that you need to read, Religious Affections, really Christian affections. What does it come down to ultimately in terms of what biblical Christianity, genuine conversion looks like? It's about having and experiencing affections. And the greatest affection that the Spirit produces is love for Christ. Love for Christ. Love for others. Building off of that. Joy. Peace. Harmony with one another. Those are the byproduct of a spirit-transformed life, holy affections. Are you doing what Jesus says to do in His Word? Do you desire in the present to obey God? Is Jesus boss of your life, regardless of the cost? And hear me, obedience is not the basis of our justification. Yes? We're justified by faith in Christ alone. Faith alone. In Christ alone, but obedience is something that the true child of God desires to do and strives to do out of love and gratitude for what Jesus has done for us. Sometime read the Heidelberg Catechism. You can categorize everything in the Heidelberg Catechism, these three points, guilt, grace, and gratitude. We were guilty before Jesus. God gave us grace in Christ. Now we live life out of gratitude in response to what Jesus has done. That's the Christian life, isn't it? We were guilty. We experienced grace. Now we live life out of gratitude in response to what Jesus has done. That's the idea. That's the key, right? And suffering for the sake of Christ is part of the deal. I've been reading Richard Wormbrandt's biography, Tortured for Christ. Richard Wormbrandt was a believer, a Romanian pastor of Jewish descent during World War II. He was a preacher, heavily involved in the underground church, helping people who were suffering physically and all kinds of difficulties because of the, the gospel. He was a, a man of God. And his book tells of the atrocities, the atrocities of the communist regime in his home country during World War II. Crazy things. Brethren, that man, that believer, that brother in the Lord who's now in heaven and graduated to glory suffered so, so much. But listen to me. It may well be that very soon we or our children or our grandchildren may be persecuted for our faith. And the question is this. Will you stand for Christ when the time comes? Will you make a stand for Jesus? I believe that one of the key things that pastors need to do in biblical Christianity today across our country is prepare God's people for incoming suffering very soon at a level that we've never experienced in our country. Already in the last two or three years, there's been some of that. But that's the tip of the iceberg. Are we prepared? Because a true follower of Christ lives with the expectation of suffering but there are people who have ceased to follow Jesus because the price is too high. The price is too high. Listen, for us who are genuinely in Christ, we rest upon the promise that if we stand for Jesus in this passing world, passing world, we will enjoy eternity everlastingly with our Redeemer. Amen? I can't wait, brethren. 
I can't wait. We have, thirdly, thirdly, if you're taking notes, the half-hearted. The half-hearted. Are you the half-hearted person? Or we might say the divided heart. You know, in our men's and women's small groups this next year, we're going to be studying the book of James, and we're going to learn of the danger of being what James calls the, the dipsukos person. Translated in the NASB, the double-minded person. The dipsukos person. Literally, the, the two-souled person. The split-souled person. The divided person who says something with their lips, but lives something else in secret when no one else is watching but God. We don't want to be the dipsukos person. We're going to look at that in James as men's and women's ministries. This is soil number three, really the half-hearted or divided heart. Look at verse 7. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop, no fruitfulness with this one. And the picture here, of course, is a seed that falls on soil that is full of thorn bush roots. And with the passing of time, both the seed and the thorn bushes grow together. And if you've planted anything, who eventually wins? <laughs> yeah, right? The thorn bushes eventually choke the seed and block its exposure to the sun and thus no growth, no crop, no fruit. That's the point. Again, Jesus isn't speaking just about plants. Look at verse 18. And others, other people, are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word. Verse 19, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and note, underline this, and it becomes what? Unfruitful. Unfruitful. Here's the classic example of a person who appears for a time to want to follow Jesus. They even give some evidence that they're genuine followers of Jesus, but there's one major problem. Ready? They love the world. They love the world. They've attached themselves to the values and the priorities and the inclinations and the mindset and the ideas and the lifestyle of the world system around us. Note, they are worried or distracted by the things of the world. Rather than focusing on God, trusting in God, setting their minds on Christ, right? Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, on Jesus in the heavenly places. Rather than doing that, they're greatly occupied with earthly things. They value and they idolize certain things above Christ. Oh, they may want to do what's right for a time, sure. But they also don't want to miss out on what the unbelieving world appears to, to have. These are the types of people who, who have this insatiable appetite for going on social media and you're always looking, wow, they seem so happy. Life without Jesus is such a happy life. Look at these entertainers. Look at these performers. Look at these former high school friends that I had, former college friends that I had. Look at my coworkers. Boy, they seem so happy. And yet they forget that there's a private life behind all those pictures and videos, isn't there? And you know what I've seen behind that, 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 those pictures and videos? Depression, sadness, Suicides, emptiness, isolation, loneliness. But yeah, on social media, we as Christians are saying, wow, they're so happy. Think again, brethren. 
Life without Jesus is no happiness at all. No happiness at all. Perhaps this type of heart soil has the mentality, I can, I can do both, right? I can hold, do this God thing, this Jesus thing, sprinkle a little Jesus in my life, a little churchiology all over my life. But I can love the world too. I'm going to do this God thing. I'm going to love the world all the while forgetting that a right vertical relationship with God has direct, necessary, and natural implications for all of your other relationships when you come to faith in Christ. Your relationship to yourself changes. It's not about what you want anymore. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. It's about what Jesus wants now. You are no longer boss with a little B of your life. You have Jesus as the boss with a big B of your life. Your relationship to sin changes. No longer are you giving in to your sin. Comfortable in your sin. Regardless of whether people know that you're doing those things in secret. You know that you're always living in the presence of God. There's a God consciousness about you as a believer. Your relationship to your sin changes so that now you hate and despise your sin and now it's a battle and a struggle and a fight against your sin, right? Your relationship towards others changes. Towards others no longer do you use others for self-pleasure to exploit them, but now you want to serve them and lay down your life for others the way that Christ laid down His life for you. Your relationship to other people changes. Your relationship toward the world changes. All of these relationships change when you come to know Christ. You see that? Put some meat to this baby, right? This is costly discipleship. James chapter 4, verse 4 says that whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You want to befriend the world? Be intimate with the world? Adopt the world's thinking? Adopt the world's ideologies? Live in patterns characteristically in accordance with the world? Listen, it says here that you're an enemy of God, no matter what you profess. It doesn't matter. James is key there. You profess, don't just say it, live it, if you really mean it. That's the, the message of James. All in. All in. Notice in verse 19 that eventually the word is choked out by the worries of the world, which includes the deceitfulness of riches. They've come to believe that materialism and money and possessions will give them happiness, will satisfy. They view or live life as if the accumulation of those things is what happiness consists of, brethren. And oh, it's not that making money or any of those things are evil in and of themselves or having a nice house or a nice car or any of those things. It's the idolizing of those things. It's the worshiping and elevating of those things above the priorities of, of Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 6.24, no one can serve two masters for either you will hate the one and love the other or else you will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, money or wealth, idolizing, worshiping it. We cannot claim that Jesus is our master yet worship or idolize materialism, right? Wasn't that the problem with the rich young ruler? Remember, he walked away from Jesus. The text says in Mark 10 that he owned much property. He owned much property. So he wasn't going to follow Jesus. What a warning to us. Is there a subtle love of money, of materialism in your heart? Does it have a grip on your life? 
What about success and career and accumulation of money and relationships and all of that? Are they more important than following after Jesus and serving Jesus and obeying Him in every area of your life? We need to examine ourselves, brethren. For you men, for you men, as the men of the church go, so does the church. As the men of the church go, so does the church. So let me ask you, how often do you neglect shepherding your family spiritually or serving in the church because you are the, the, um, the proverbial workaholic? Well, it's for, about providing for my family. Yeah, there's a providing for your family and then there is self-worship through materialism where you neglect the weightier things, right? And not spiritually shepherd your family because you idolize wealth and materialism and all of those things. The Word of God warns against those, those such things. Idolatry, right? Notice also in verse 19, the Word is choked by the desires for other things. Desires, lusts, evil desires. The divided, half-hearted person craves or longs for other things rather than, than Christ. These could be relationships. Sinful relationships. Friendships. Idolizing friends above Jesus. Hobbies even can become that. Experiences in your life. Pet sins that no one knows about. That drive you away from Jesus. Other things, the lust or evil desire for other things, come in and choke the Word. That's the soil right here. Later in Mark 8.36, Jesus will appeal to the multitudes. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus is saying, what could be of more value than the destiny of your soul? Nothing that this world has to offer could be more important than your soul. And yet people crave for temporal things and reject Jesus. What a reminder to us, brethren. 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. <laughs> There's the reward for us Christians. Costly to follow Jesus in this earthly life? Absolutely eternally rewarding, you better believe it. Which do you want? And so Jesus' third soil then is a serious warning that if the world or the Word is to bear fruit in your life, you should not allow anyone or anything to distract you from Christ. Amen? Nothing, brethren. Fourth. Fourth. We've seen the hard-hearted, the shallow-hearted, the half-hearted, now I want you to see the tender-hearted. The tender-hearted. This is who we should all want to be and who the true believer is, by the way. The previous three soils describe the unconverted market. This fourth soil is the true believer, the tender-hearted. Look at verse 8. Other seeds fell into the good soil, and as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produce 30, 60, and a hundredfold. All this is speaking, of course, of a wonderful, abundant spiritual harvest. Jesus isn't speaking just about a physical harvest, of course, but a, a spiritual one, and he explains this. Look at verse 20. And those are the ones on whom seed was sown on the, on the good soil, and they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30, 60, and a hundredfold. That word there, accept it, that verb, means to embrace to appropriate, to acknowledge, 
to be devoted to, if you will. Our Lord is talking about varying degrees here of spiritual fruitfulness. Mark it, spiritual fruitfulness is the key characteristic here in the parable of the four soils that distinguishes this good soil from the rest. When the word falls upon this tender heart, what will it do? It's going to produce fruit. Fruitfulness in various degrees, depending on one's ongoing response. I I love this in verse 20. Three present tense participles there, describing the ongoing fruitfulness of this type of person. They hear the word. They continually are hearing the word. They are accepting the word continually, and they are continually bearing fruit. There's this ongoing spiritual productivity in varying degrees in their walk with Christ. In other words, this type of person right here strives to continually cultivate a habitual, humble heart in response to the word of God. Fruitfulness. They are the blessed man. Read Psalm 1 later on. The blessed man who, is, who delights in the law of the Lord, who meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. Those who humbly delight, brethren, in the word are blessed of God. They experience true happiness, not as the world defines it, but as God defines it. Because of your response to the truth, this is a tender-hearted person. That James 1.25 describes, by the way, that who, who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man, he says, who is the effectual doer, will be blessed in what he or she does. This type of Christian bears much fruit. What kind of fruitfulness will this type of person produce? Well, there's devotional fruitfulness. There's a thriving relationship with Christ. Love for and affection for God because you're in the Word. You're being reminded not of yourself, but of the goodness and the greatness and the attributes of God and the wonders of the Gospel. There is devotional fruitfulness for the believer. There is evangelistic fruitfulness where you will desire to tell people about Jesus, to follow after Christ, right? Listen, if you are not fishing, then perhaps you are not following. If you are not fishing, then perhaps you are not following. Think about that. Because if you're a believer, it may look different for each of us, and we're all wired different, but we will want to tell people about Jesus. Otherwise, you may not be following. There's evangelistic fruitfulness. There's relational fruitfulness, where you will desire and pursue peace with others, unity, love, harmony, forgiveness. You will not be content if you're being fruitful as a believer and thriving in your relationship with Christ, you will not be content with ongoing friction between you and somebody else. There's relational fruitfulness. There's fruitfulness in in service. In service. We will want to serve Christ and meet needs. Do the works that God has prepared beforehand for us to do. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. Paul understood this life of fruitfulness. Philippians 1.21, he says, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, that is, if I keep living, this will mean, ready for this, fruitful labor for me. And I don't know which to choose. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Paul says, I long to be with Jesus. Ultimately, that would even be far better from my perspective. He says, but you know what? As long as he has me here, here's my purpose. I want to be fruitful. I want to be a blessing to you, brethren, Philippians. Boy, 
And so we, re- we, we end, brethren, where we begin. Which kind of heart best describes you in the present? Which soil are you? Are you the hard-hearted, the shallow-hearted, the half-hearted, or are you the tender-hearted? Are you bearing fruit for Christ? Are you using the spiritual gifts that God has given you, resources, abilities for God's kingdom? Brethren, we have been saved to serve. We have been saved to serve. And by the way, by the way, fruit-bearing Christians are only able to produce fruit because of God's grace and the Spirit of God working in and through us. Yes? There's the divine battery, the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 15, verse 16, Jesus said, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. But earlier he told them how they would bear fruit. He said, It's by abiding in me. For apart from me, says Jesus, you can do what? Nothing. Nothing. His disciples were already following him. They were Christians, but they needed to live in communion with Jesus, dependent upon him if they were to be fruitful. Fruitfulness doesn't just happen by our own will or strength, brethren. We need the Holy Spirit. Amen? And the grace of Christ. But it also won't happen without your maximum effort as those who are fueled by the grace of Christ. Both are true. Both are true. I love what one pastor comments about the tender-hearted Christian here. Listen. Quote, the good here, soil number four, welcomes the word immediately so that it cannot be snatched away by Satan. The good here welcomes the word deeply so that it is not withered by persecution. The good here welcomes it exclusively so that other concerns do not strangle it. As the seed fails in three different ways in the bad soils, so it succeeds in three different ways in good soil and bears much fruit, end quote. That's good stuff, isn't it? May the Lord help us, brethren, to be that fruitful soil. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, boy, this is a sobering and serious matter, Lord. And you desire our eternal happiness, but we know that this is impossible apart from us responding to the call of Christ to follow after you. Lord, I pray that for some people in here, that today would be the day of salvation, where today they would begin to be that fourth soil who becomes fruitful for your glory and for the good of others. And for those of us who are saved, may we realize today, Lord, that complacency and lethargy and passivity in our Christian life and succumbing to a culture that breeds that is dangerous and doesn't glorify you. Father, help us to repent of these sins and by your grace bear much fruit for you, for your glory and the good of our brethren. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.